Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. We talk all the time on this show about how musicians have had to become extremely creative in order to make a living these days, when you can't count on royalties from album sales like you once could. Some artists have managed to create a niche for themselves by seeing an opportunity and going for it, like the band OK Go did when their first video went viral. On today's show, we're going to talk to some musicians who created their own niches and are quite successful as a result. Their stories prove that there's not just one path to success. So young musicians, take note. If you see an opportunity, take it. It could really work out for you. My guest is Simon Tam of the band The Slants. Welcome to The Future of What, Simon? Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So you have an awesome story. So I want you to tell our audience just how did your band get started and what do you guys do? A lot of times people call us the world's first and only all Asian American dance rock band, which is kind of a mouthful, but it kind of got started because I watched a movie, Kill Bill from Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> and like I, I got it. When it came out on DVD, I was watching it, and there's a scene of this woman named Ornishi. She walks into a restaurant, and she walks in with this gang of crazy 88s. And it, it that moment was so powerful for me because it, it struck me that I'd never seen Asian Americans depicted as cool, confident, and sexy before on, on any mainstream film. And then I thought about my art, my passion, which is music. And I thought, wait, how come people don't, there's nobody that looks like me on the Billboard charts or in Rolling Stone or in MTV when back when they used to play music videos. Like, why is there, even though there's 17 million of us, how come we have almost no representation? And so then I had this idea. I was like, you know, maybe I should start a band that deliberately celebrates uh, my culture in a bold kind of way with music that kind of throws back to 80s synth pop. And so that's kind of how we got started. But from then on, it became this whole series of adventures, like of being that Asian band, of like kind of thrown into weird niches when when, when it wasn't quite expected, of uh, tackling anime conventions as a market and, and everything else. <laughs> so tell us the story of how you got started with the anime conventions, because that is something I think that people would not have expected, and it's a really unique story. Sure. So back in 2006, when I was looking for musicians to recruit for the band, I got invited to an anime convention. I thought, oh, great. There's going to be a ton of Asian kids there. Maybe some play music and I can meet some of them. It turns out it's a bunch of white kids who are obsessed with Asian culture. And, <laughs> and most of them don't play music. But as I was going through there, I noticed they're just really into the culture and they were paying 50, 60 bucks for import CDs. And I thought, well, if I brought in a real band here that isn't doing imports, we can we can do quite well. And so I went back home. I emailed the convention right away, even though I didn't have a lineup yet. And I said, hey, I play in this Asian band called The Slants. I want to play at your convention. And they're like, you're Asian? Sure, you could be our guest of honor next year. So I was like, that was easy. And I was like, okay, I better get a lineup together. And as soon as I had that lineup, I was trying to convince them all, like, we got to play anime conventions. This is a great market. 
it. And they were all used to doing clubs and that kind of thing. They're like, that's crazy. Why would you ever do that? And I was like, just trust me. Like nobody else is doing this. So we went and played that convention. And in that one show, we made enough to basically buy us a tour bus, pay for all our merch and put out our first album Whoa. Uh, just from, from one show. And they had never heard of us before, but wow. we had like 800 kids just jumping and screaming and dancing, like treating us like we were total rock stars. And then I thought, we got to do this all the time. <laughs> so I went and just contacted a bunch of other conventions. And I was like, we played this one con. Uh, you should invite us too. And, you know, sure enough, a lot of them were inviting us in because they didn't really have any bands out there. And so to this day, we've actually played more anime conventions than any band in the world. And the funny thing is we have nothing to do with anime. We've never been on an anime soundtrack. We don't play anime cover songs or anything like that. But because we've kind of established ourselves in that market, people see us as that kind of go-to band. Wow. And so we get flown all around the world to play these conventions. And I like I kind of tell by the attendance numbers how many CDs I'm going to sell that, that weekend and how many t-shirts to bring because it's oh, so man. consistent. Wow. And so like at minimum, I'll bring like, I know I'm going to sell like 50 discs and a bunch of t-shirts. And it, it just worked out really, really well. And so we've actually kind of structured our career around it. Like I book entire tours using anime conventions as our anchors. So if we play for a club and only make a hundred bucks, I know I can go to a convention that's going to put us in like a five-star resort and play for a couple of days where we can shower and eat and and make enough <laughs> money to pay for the tour and and have my band members taken care of. Wow, that is really genius. <laughs> that was a genius move on your part to do that. So, and you told me before that you actually used to play more anime conventions and you've cut back. Yeah, I mean, ever since the economy kind of took this hit, people had less and less spending cash. Conventions kind of scaled down their budgets. And so that that impacted us quite a bit. But as things are picking up, we're actually starting to play more conventions again. Like I just starting this year, we were in the news quite a bit recently. I started getting a lot of interest from other conventions. So we're, we're seeing that pick up quite a bit. And even overseas too, like conventions in Europe and Australia are looking into us now. Wow. You guys are going to go all the way around the world just on... <laughs> just on conventions. I'm trying to book this anime convention in Moscow right now, but Google Translate is not not working out so well. <laughs> so if I could find someone to translate, then I, you know, it, well, it would work Well, this is a radio out. show, so write to us at thefutureofwedshow at gmail.com if you are a Russian translator. You or can you be know our one. tour manager. There you go. You come with us. <laughs> you can go to Moscow with this Lance. So you mentioned you've been in the news lately because of this legal issue. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So for the last six years, we've been fighting against the U.S. government, um, in particular the U.S. Trademark Office, because when we filed an application to register our band's trademark, they said no. They said your name is disparaging to Asians, even though we're all Asian and a huge chunk of our audience is Asian American. And so we've been fighting in this thing and numerous courts over and over again, but we just came out of the federal circuit, which is one step below the Supreme Court, and the federal circuit ruled in our favor saying that the trademark office was actually abridging our First Amendment rights. Wow. And so this ruling actually was quite historic because they're striking down a federal statute of law, one that we discovered through our legal case was allowing the Department of Justice and Trademark Office to deny people rights based on their race or sexual orientation. So we were able to get rid of that and move forward with, with expanding the First Amendment. So it's it's been pretty incredible. Wow. Um, there was this lawyer convention in, in San Diego that was held a couple months ago of like IP lawyers. And they're like, the slants are the most famous band in the world 
for lawyers right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the the other thing we're doing now, in addition to anime conventions, is now I'm touring law offices and playing private parties for lawyers. And we're going to law schools, and I go as a speaker, and sometimes our band performs. And so it's it's fascinating. Wow. I'm not a lawyer, and I probably will never be, but <laughs> apparently. Through this struggle, I have gotten to know this law more intimately than the most lawyers do there in their entire career. So, so they're having us speak, and then like, oh, you know, it'd be fun is like having the band play too. And I'm I love like, that. That's sure, the lawyer's second thought. <laughs> oh, that would be great to have a band play too. Like that might be fun for some people. Yeah. So we're we're like we're going up to Seattle right now. We're going to do this thing called CLE, which is like a training for lawyers that they need for certification and other things. And then we're going to be playing for a bunch of lawyers in their law offices like right after. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic. And lawyers have money. so Lawyers have money, so. That's going to be a good audience for you. <laughs> Maybe I'll say like, this is an import CD, <laughs> 50 bucks. That's incredible. But if anything, it helps having a bunch of lawyers be friendly towards you if, if things come up. Wow. So now another interesting thing about your band, because you run your band a lot like a business, which a lot of bands, a lot of bands are, are sort of bands of friends and it's very casual, but you have an application online, correct? If you want to be a <laughs> member of the Slants, you have to apply. Yeah. My, and my band members joke about this all the time. So one of the ways to filter out band members, aside from like their ethnicity, is that I, I have this application and it has you know, the typical stuff you ask, like their name, contact info, but it also has questions like, why do you want to join this band? Like, what what about this band appeals to you? What's your work ethic like? Do you have transportation? We ask for dietary preferences. Uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's like short answer sections. My... <laughs> Like my, we, we got a new lead singer about two years ago and he was just, he was like, you, it took me like two hours to fill out this thing. I was like, yeah, but that's how I knew you would be serious about this band. In addition to having that application on our website that people fill out, once we get that and kind of sort through the candidates we like, we actually bring him in for a live audition. And so we'll run out a venue in town and people are expected to show up and do a five song set with us without ever rehearsing with us just to see if they could pick up our songs, see how they perform on stage stage and we videotape them performing with us and we basically treat it like a live show except no one's in the room it's just us and the the video camera and then after they perform with us we do an in-person interview for about 15 to 30 minutes just to fill them out see what their personalities like see if they gel with the band and, and kind of go from there so it, wow. it's quite a process but I'd say like, this is something I learned over the years after having a lot of turnover in the band that I really want to make sure if people joined that they were really serious about the band, that they would honor their commitments, that they wouldn't flake out on us. And then once they're in the band, I think they appreciate the process because they're like, we, gone, we went through all of this together and it's almost like hazing them in or something because <laughs> then they, they kind of bond over it and, and they make fun of me all the time. Like if they if they screw up at a show, they're like, oh man, Simon's going to put this on our performance review. <laughs> you do performance reviews? I don't actually, but like, maybe I should. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. But it, it, we definitely treat it like a business and we treat I treat them like employees, but it also through that process, they become like family too. Right. Because they realize that how much is at stake that... I, I, and I remind them all the time, like, this isn't just about, like, your show, like, you performing well. Like, if you screw up or if you're, if you're late to a show, that affects all of us and all of our livelihoods. Right. And so they, they all know that. And, and so there's, like, this deeper connection. And, and it, it creates, like, this really great work ethic among the band. I think it's genius. I mean, from my perspective, it's genius because I've just worked with band after band and had these, you know, heard stories and also 
actually worked with people who just give up for the craziest reasons or, you know, oh, I can't tour because my girlfriend, I'll miss my girlfriend too much or, sure. I mean, just crazy. I think I told you the story of the first band I managed whose drummer refused to go on tour because he didn't want to lose his job at his dad's grocery store. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wow, you've got the rest of your life to be a checker. <laughs> like, I, if that's really your biggest ambition, like, you're, come on, man, you could be a rock star. And it's funny how, like, people just don't... Ha- really think about these things before they make those commitments. Mm-hmm. And that's why we we even interview the applicants if they have a spouse. Like we we took the my drummer and his wife out to the the singer who was auditioning and his wife just to make sure that like okay, this is what it's going to be like. Can you be apart from each other for months at a time? And then we we actually have our drummer's wife there so she could explain what it's like from her point of view and then they kind of bond when we're on the road and that sort of thing. But it it's we have to like vet the, through these things so we're not you know, about to jump on a tour and then have somebody back out right last minute. Absolutely. We need to be able to honor those commitments and make sure that they they actually want to have that kind of a lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you guys also are making real money, it sounds like, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, enough to like where most of the band doesn't have like day jobs and that exactly. sort of thing. So, and, and you know, that's a, an important part of that, right? If you're going to take a job that actually supports you, because I think that's one of the problems with bands. People get into bands when they don't have any money. Sure. So it just seems like a fun thing that you're doing with your friends, but then if it grows and it becomes something, then you have to reassess everything. Yeah, you have to treat it like a job. And it's like, will your job allow you to show up totally drunk or, <laughs> or late um, all the time? No. And and so we, we have that written to the band contract that you're not drinking on stage, you, you, you're, you're responsible for your own equipment, you know, like all that kind of basic stuff. And once we get those conversations out of the way, it just makes it a lot easier to breathe because we know we can count on each other. We know what the expectations are like right from the beginning. And it's it's great. I, I mean, I, I love the band members that I have now. They treat it like a profession. That's awesome. So you created your own niche basically, and you guys are being very successful in this niche that you created. Do you have your sights on any other niches that you think you can move into at this point? Uh, <laughs> we're actually working into doing films now. Really? So there, there's a filmmaker who's making a documentary on our band's legal case, but we're, we're going to be touring China, Japan, and Taiwan this year. And so we were thinking about doing a, like a DVD of each of those where we kind of talk about us meeting our family for the first time, reconnecting with our ancestral homelands or our heritage, so to speak, while playing these rock and roll shows and, and seeing what that's like. And we're, we're also really, really into food. Like we have this Yelp channel, we release food guides. And so we might be doing reviews of restaurants on tour as well now. Wow, that's fantastic. Maybe we'll convince Anthony Bourdain to tour with us. <laughs> Well, Simon Tam is a musician and an entrepreneur and a creator of niches. So thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Thank you for having me.
That was Capture Me Burning by The Slants. You're listening to The Future of What? Find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Bandcamp. Charmaine Clamore is America's leading Filipino jazz and world vocalist and the self-proclaimed queen of jazzapino. Charmaine, thanks for joining us on The Future of What? Hi, thank you for having me. So your story is so exciting and interesting. You grew up in the Philippines in a small town, correct? Yes, in a town of Subic, Zambales, which is north of Manila, which is the capital city of the Philippines. And you started out playing piano for your mother. You accompanied your mom, correct? You're right, right. My mom sings soprano and we used to, I used to accompany her after dinner and while my dad listened. So how old were you when you started playing piano? I got piano lessons when I was six years old and I started accompanying her. If if my memory serves me well, Portia, (laughs) (laughs) it's probably I started accompanying her maybe when I was nine or 10, something like that. Wow. And she sang songs that were both classic Filipino songs and also English songs, correct? Right. Yes. But mainly a lot of kundiman or are the Filipino heart-wrenching ballads in the 40s and 50s. So how did you come to your love of jazz? Well, jazz started coming to the Philippines during World War II. And both my mom and dad were children of World War II. And so that was their popular music back then. And so when I was born, that was the music that was playing in our living room when I wake up in the morning. So that was all I listened to and, and classical music, you know, just like how you would wake up. And so that, that's the kind of music that kind of got into my blood. And it's, it was almost natural to me as well as what we call OPM, original Filipino music. So you describe your music as jazzapino. And can you describe that for our listeners? Jazzapino is combination of this unique American art form called jazz and Filipino music, indigenous instruments, and languages or dialects. Jazz, Filipino, jazz, Filipino. <laughs> I mean, I love your music. It's beautiful, but it's very unique. Thank you. you know, it's, it's, you have a, you. a gorgeous voice, but you also sing, you sing in both English and Tagalog. Did I say that correctly? Yes, that's right. Very, very well. <laughs> very impressive. <laughs> oh, thank you. And you you write original songs and you just, I mean, it's, a, it's an impressive blend for an artist, you know, who could just be singing the classics. You know, you have a beautiful voice. You could just have made a living singing the classics. What made you decide to do this unique blend that you came up with? Because I believe that it's who I am as a human being and it's a and art is an expression of who you are. And so because I am both, I grew up both listening to Filipino music and jazz. So my music is just an extension of me and that it's just the organic result of that the upbringing of mine, of my childhood. And so now, of course, you have an international reputation. You have fans all around the world. And how is it in the United States when you go on tour? It's very interesting because it, I get very mixed results. Sometimes I'll get some really, really warm, <laughs> really, really warm audiences. And then you, I know that 
they have heard the music before and they would sometimes sing with me, especially my funny brown pinai, which is probably my biggest <laughs> hit. And then I will go to other places where they have not heard me before. <laughs> and it's interesting. And, and some of them, they, you know, it's like any other artist, either you convert them or not. In some areas, I, I've noticed even with radio airplay, some of them like the traditional jazz, which is not the fusion, which is what I do, which is which I believe is a fusion. And so they're more traditional. And those areas, basically, they are not as open to what mm-hmm. I do. I mean, they like it, but, you know, they're not as would you say more as hardcore as the other areas and what's really interesting to me is that it used to be just Filipinos who would listen to the music but because I think music is as we know it's universal so I would have mixture of different cultures listening to to the music which is very gratifying to me absolutely no I think that's amazing when an artist can bridge cultures. And I think that, you know, today's show, we're talking about artists who have been able to open a niche for themselves. And I'm talking to you because I think you've done an amazing job of doing exactly that. You know, it's not, it's not every day that you think of, you know, jazz a Pino. <laughs> right. <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's, a, it's really an interesting journey for me, Portia, because I never thought that it will be a niche. It's just so it wasn't planned or marketed that way, which is something that, like I said earlier, it was just an extension of who who I am, what I grew up with as a young, you know, as a child in the Philippines, where jazz started permeating the Philippines in World War II. And my parents were, you know, of course, product of that. And that's how it happened. And And now because of the unique childhood background, that's how my music was highly influenced. And you've lived in the U.S. for years, but you are actually quite a big star in the Philippines. Is that right? I would not say a big star. <laughs> I would say, I would say, well, you know, I'm not a pop star. Pop star is like all over. But I think jazz is not won't have the same audience reach as pop stars. I think that's just the way it is. So I would say, to a certain part of the Philippines, I do have a really good following there. Yes. Well, you've done a duet with the president of the country. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> that seems like a pretty big deal. <laughs> it, is, it is so true. That was so awesome. The, uh, yes, it's so awesome because he is the president. When uh, my parents and I migrated to the Philippines, it was during the People's Revolution. Mm-hmm. And his mother... President Corazon Aquino was the president, was the revolutionary president then after throwing uh, the dictatorship. And so, it, I, and I thought, huh, I did not know that I would be able to sing in a Malacanian palace with the president, with my parents, and it would be <laughs> the president, the son, right? The son of the, the woman, the, the housewife who managed to throw off the 20-year dictator from our country. I, I thought that was such a powerful sign for me or pivotal moment in my life. Absolutely. That's truly amazing. Yeah. And he can sing, man. He can, <laughs> he can really sing. So that was so pleasurable. And and the, the, the beautiful thing about that was that concert was just done for me because mm-hmm. uh, I was there. It, it wasn't that they had an event and they invited me. It was actually put up for me. So that's 
I, that really made me feel very special, especially the, the, the fact that I could bring my parents. Of course. Um, they were there too, so I could bring them to. That's to fantastic. Yes. That is wonderful. So you have four albums and what is coming up next for you? I have four out. Now I'm trying to think, wait, do I only have four <laughs> albums? <laughs> I, I think I do have, uh, yeah, I think I do have four albums. My latest one is uh, The Better Angels. So that one is still kind of new to me. And this, this Better Angels Festival has brought a community of volunteers who just wanted to be at their best or tap into the better angels of their nature. And so what it brought was 10 days of giving free healing services or health services during the day and free cultural arts at night. So we did it for 10 days and we did another one in October and then we're going to do another one, I believe in the spring of this year. So it's become a movement from, from that album. So that, oh. I think that's one of my most beautiful works so far, this movement that was inspired by this album. Wow. So that's what's coming up. Yes. And I think that more and more that album is in English, but more and more, I think my direction this year is to go back to my roots and really sing the music of my blood, of my motherland whether it's original, creating more original songs or having our own arrangement of music from, from the motherland. Well, we look forward to hearing that when you do. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Charmaine Clamore is the queen of Jazzapino. Charmaine, thanks so much for being with us on The Future of What today. Thank you so much for having me. Take a look at my skin. It's brown. Go ahead. Look at my nose. <laughs> it's flat. I'm singing for all my sisters. Growing up thinking they don't look right. Cause they ain't white. Rubbing with papaya soap to make it light. Girl, I think you're out of sight. You are beautiful. Magandaka. Ikawai Indio. Ikawai Filipino. Above. 
Was My Funny Brown Panay by Charmaine Clamore. If you're enjoying this program, please consider becoming a subscriber on Bandcamp. Just go to thefutureofwhat.bandcamp.com. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Now back to the show. Eric Isaacson is the owner of Mississippi Records, and we are so pleased that you're joining us in the studio today. Welcome to the future of what, Eric? Oh, thanks for having me. So today's topic is basically people creating their own niches in the music business. And we're talking about this because I think it's important for people to realize that you don't just have to do what everybody else does. And that a lot of times things work out better in the music business when you kind of follow your own path and you think of things that other people haven't thought of and you just do it. A lot of times people can really be successful in doing that. So we wanted to talk to you because you own Mississippi Records, which is both a store and a label. So can you give us a little bit of background about how you got started with that? I started the store back in 2003. Honestly, I had no business plan or no idea what I was doing. I just was moving back to Portland after a long absence, and I couldn't find a job and was offered a space real cheap. So I just decided I had a, cobbled together a little bit of savings and started the store with just, you know, when, the day we opened, we just had $50 and ones and fives in the register and no business plan, no idea how to get credit if things failed, no idea if anything would sell. But fortunately, things did really well, and we ended up surviving quite well, strangely, bizarrely. So it was sort of a, a desperate act, <laughs> and uh, it worked out in my favor. So tell us what you sell at Mississippi Records. It's an all-vinyl store and cassette tapes and stereo gear. Originally, we had CDs too, but when we opened, the neighborhood was a little rough, and we would have people, like, suddenly the amount of cars being broken into was, you know, up by 20 times as much as it was before we opened because people were just smashing windows and grabbing CDs and bringing them in. So I became a repo agency for CDs and I, <laughs> I quickly stopped selling them. So we went straight final. So everybody thinks I have some kind of anti-digital thing or anti-CD thing, but in fact, it was just a way to protect the windshields <laughs> and, and windows in our neighborhood. So yeah, we're vinyl and cassette only record store and that's about it. And that's Interesting because you kind of, I mean, this is one of those things where you can never say, right? It's a chicken and egg. I don't know. But it really was zeitgeisty for you. Like you guys happened to start the store at a time when people also started to get really back into vinyl and then started getting really into cassettes again. We've talked about that a bunch on this show, about how in the last few years that's just been an explosion. We talked to the guys from Burger Records, for example, oh, sure, yeah. who sold over 300,000 cassette tapes, which... Get out of here. Yeah, it's wow. such a crazy number to think because, you know, cassettes are the format of my childhood. Yeah, sure. So, you that's know, wild. It's funny that there's, you know, 18-year-olds running around with cassettes. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Our, our cassette sales are almost as high as our vinyl sales, which are, oh, are bonkers. And That's I mean, a lot of it's nuts. we have $3 cassettes and that I think the price point really drives up that market more than anything. But yeah, I would never would have seen that coming. We have like a cassette series of just janky mixtapes that look like a, <laughs> like a five-year-old made them. Um, I make them, but you know, my art 
<laughs> the level that which I can draw and, and sort of design things is at the level of a five-year-old. So, and these sell, you know, we sell 500 of these a month, maybe. Unbelievable. Yeah. And these yeah. are like, the, I mean, if you saw these, you would, your jaw would drop that we can sell 500 of these a month, but we do. And people seem to like them too. So talk about your clientele a little bit. How, what if, what kind of changes have you seen over the last few years in the people who come into the store? It has gotten a lot younger and it's gotten a little bit more homogenized. Um, originally, we were very much a neighborhood store. We had all walks of life coming in, just the all the weirdos who still kept their record players and never adapted to CDs. Because at that point, there weren't a lot of vinyl stores. In, and in my neighborhood, there wasn't a vinyl store since the 80s, except for punk stores, you know, that just had punk LPs. So we had every little old person and every young person who still played with their record player coming in. And it was really a, a cross-section that was really diverse. Since then, it's sort of, the neighborhood has changed, and so we've actually become strangely a tourist destination, largely. Touring bands are a huge part of our clientele, an unbelievably huge part of our clientele. Wow. We're sort of on this strange Portland map of, you know, the sort of quirky businesses that you go to visit to see weird Portland or whatever the hell, this sort of <laughs> thing that's being perpetrated by Portlandia and all this kind of stuff. And so we, we get a lot of tourists, a lot of record collectors from around the world. Wow. And that's about, I, I know this will blow your mind, maybe 60% of our sales are people outside of Portland wow. buying things from us and showing up. And we don't have a web store. We're not on the internet at all. You guys don't even uh, take credit cards. We don't take credit cards. We still don't have an <laughs> inventory system that's digital. We do everything in a notebook oh, no. with a pen and a calculator. Oh my God. And then when we reorder, we do it out of our heads, you know? So, wow. It's, yeah, it's a pretty primitive operation with not a very, and yet we, we, because we have a record label that sort of makes its way around the world, we attract all these people from around the world buying records and it's really bizarre and, and part of, I'm really excited about it now. It took me a big adjustment, you know, watching a sort of a road as a local store. We also have five new record stores just within spitting distance of us where he's, wow. you know, we used to not. So the market for records is really split in my neighborhood. And they're good stores too, so it's not like you know crappy stores here. Right. And there. We have five good record stores. It's in not the like you and TJ Maxx. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's me and and four other great independent stores, all wow. within essentially walking distance. And it used to be just me, so yeah. that that doesn't help. So you know, I had my grievance period of that, like in the two thousand. 10 to 2013, where I was sort of like, oh, all my local people, where's my neighborhood? Woe is me. And then slowly I noticed this pattern where business wasn't going down, it was still going up. And I realized we have a global community now and I have to adjust to that wow. instead of having a local community. How does that affect your ordering? Like when you, I mean, do you basically just get stuff into the stores that you love? Is that still what you do? Yeah, it hasn't affected anything. The aesthetics of the store has been steady since the day we opened. It's really been the ideas. The most important thing is price point trying to keep everything lower than every other store in town and just kind of keep everything to where it's affordable. And I think that's ultimately why we win. Like these days, you know, anybody can get any record, but how often can you walk into a record store and most of the deals are decent and better than the internet and better than the neighborhood stores? You know, that's what we try to focus on. But then beyond that, we have a pretty narrow taste. We do every genre, but it's sort of based on just what we think is the best of the best in that genre, but our sort of weird version of that, which is, you know, it's its own version of that, let's just say. So you're listening to The Future of What, and we're talking to Eric Isaacson, the owner of Mississippi Records. So let's talk a little bit about the label. 
When did you start the label? The label started a couple years into the store existing, and we started it just because there were certain genres of music that weren't really being represented on vinyl at the time. This was in 2004 is when we started it. And at that point, there were not a lot of reissue labels happening that were covering blues, gospel, you know, things that I was interested in, African acoustic guitar music. There was nothing really covering that. And so I started the label mainly just to put records in my own store and a few friends' stores across the country. I, I had no idea that there would be a market beyond that. So we were a 500 press, kind of, you know, hand-gluing the record covers together ourselves using photographs and, and screen prints that we made. Um, you know, this was a real DIY operation. I was running it out of my bedroom in a punk house. <laughs> You know, just filled with boxes and assembly line and would go into the post office every morning before work, then working all day and then coming home and assembling and gluing records with them. You know, I'd have all the kids in the neighborhood come in and bribe them with ice cream and cartoons to sit there and glue with me all night. And like, it was, you know, the jankiest of janky operations. And that's how we started, strangely. That's incredible. And so now what are you doing each year in terms of numbers of vinyl? We've slowed down recently, but at our peak about two years ago, we were doing 40 releases a year, Whoa. pressings ranging from, you know, we still occasionally do 500 press for for more esoteric stuff, but some things on our label have sold as much as 8,000 copies. Wow. And some of the most bizarre stuff that you would never in your wildest imagination think we could sell that many of, we have, so like a organ player from Niger who <laughs> recorded something in 1978 that sounds kind of like undersea adventure music mixed with, I don't know, Kraftwerk or something. <laughs> and this is like, you know, we'll sell 8,000 of this and it's inexplicable. I still don't understand what's going on, you know. That's and, incredible. Yeah, so. But you have a distributor. We have multiple distributors. Our label, it's funny, we, we have amazing distribution despite ourselves. We, we do direct-to-store <laughs> di distributing through our own distro. But then beyond that, we've been lucky enough to have a lot of major distributors in America pick us up and in Europe too, um, and a little bit in other parts of the world. And, and we haven't been aggressive about it at all. I mean, we have no press. We don't even send out one sheets. We don't send out <laughs> anything like that unless requested. To distribute our label, you have to call us and say, can I distribute your label? And that's the only way we've ever gotten a distro. We've never once tried to seek out a distro in the history of our label. Wow. Or a store. We've just been lucky and, and had people call us. When you say major distributors, do you just mean big? Or are they actually major label distributors? Oh, no major label distributors. I'm sorry. I didn't um, think it's, so. Yeah, no. When I, major by my standards, which yeah. would be like forced <laughs> exposure. Oh, my God, they're huge. Or revolver, <laughs> you know. These are, to me, I, I know in the, in the scheme of things, these are small distributors. Distributors, but in my world, these are tremendous. You know, right. Ernie, Ernie B's Reggae is a huge distributor by my standards. So. Right, right. But we do well because we work with these very niche, sort of specialized distributors, and they really, in turn, champion our stuff more because they're small and because they sort of care about something they can actually sell, you know, 100, 200 of to them, that's good numbers. So they'll look at us as a very saleable thing, as opposed to if we were with one of the big major label distributors, they'd be like, 200 copies? Jesus, this is a waste of time. Forget you would, it. You would never have gotten that call oh, no. from one of those major distributors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not worth their time. No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. I love, I love the story. It's such a cool story. It's sort of like you guys can do it 
on your own terms. Now, you haven't added tons of staff, right, to cope with, no matter how much you guys are doing, you really haven't added tons of staff? No, we haven't added much staff. We've had virtually the same staff since we started. Nobody's ever quit, and everybody just kind of hung out. You know, we still make a really meager living. I mean, we never figured out how to make money off this whole thing. We've expanded pretty enormously, but at the same time, somehow we make less money even though we've gotten bigger. Well, I, I mean, Kill Rockstars has done a similar thing. We used to put out, I think the the year I took over, 2006, we had 47 releases that year. So mm. you do find that when you put out more records, the, the money goes out more than it comes in. Yeah, I'm learning that the hard way. Um, this year we ratcheted it down to quite a few less releases and I've gotten a little more tight. But for a while there, I went mad with power and I was just so excited I could do this, you know, that I yeah. could get these things. When I got... And I love so much music that wasn't being represented on vinyl, so I'd I'd overreach and, and I got a little stupid and, and crazy and now I'm sort of paying the price and ratcheting everything down, doing smaller presses. Um, you know, I've been humbled, I've been slapped down. Right. And that moment where I could sell, there was a moment in, before this sort of revolution of new reissue labels and sort of vinyl resurgence, and I'm talking right before that, which I would say is like 2004 to 2008. I really think it really exploded in 2008, 2009, maybe 2010. Right before that, we were covering certain genres, certain genres of music you could only get through our label, which is bonkers, but that's yeah. how it was. And um, at that point, we, I just got so cocky. I could put out anything. I'd put out a record of a guy beating on a trash can and screaming and then sell 2,000 <laughs> copies. Or, you know, like there was this one record we put out, Bishop Perry Tillis, where it's a, a beautiful record. But talk about difficult. It was like this guy would record himself into multiple boom boxes. So he'd record one part in a boom box and then in another and another. And then he'd play all the boom boxes at once and record himself playing along with the boom boxes to make a chorus of his own voices. And this was like a very, you know, cacophonous but beautiful kind of sound. And, wow. and like as lo-fi as you can imagine recording being. And to me, it was like one of the most beautiful things ever. But And I just put out 2,000 of it and we sold them, you know. And this is something that now I can't imagine selling 2,000 of. I, I was going to say, that'll make you think you're God. <laughs> you're well, like, here you go. <laughs> I just felt like people... I can I, do anything. It was less about me. It was more about the world. I was like, the world just wants to hear this beautiful stuff. I'm right. This stuff right, is beautiful. Right. Everybody needs this, you know. And to me, 2,000 people, I mean, to kill rock stars, I'm sure that's a small number. But to me, that was like enormous. No, no. 2,000 is great. Is it? It's okay. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I think for anybody, for anybody's yeah. standard. Yeah. So now talk to us about the whole digital world, like digital downloads and streaming. I'm assuming you guys don't do any of that. Yeah, we don't participate in that. And I'll, it's nothing against that way of receiving music or that whole world. It's it's more a matter of comfort zones and, and aesthetics. I mean, I just don't understand it, to be honest, and I'm not part of it. Also, we've actually managed to get some really great artists to work with us in archives because we don't do this. So sort of the deal I get to throw down is, hey, I'll do the most, the least profitable and most annoying thing to deal with, vinyl for you. <laughs> I'll pay you a royalty in advance. We pay all royalties in advance. And you'll and I'll do a limited number of copies and then you don't have to then there's no exclusivity and you can take the artwork take the music do whatever you want and release it yourself digitally or through another server or whatever you want to do through Bandcamp Yada Ying whatever works for you I don't know and um, you can put out the CD you can work with other labels I don't care you know as long as I get to do my little vinyl version of it 
I'm happy. So there's no exclusivity, and that allows certain people to work with us. Somebody like the Alan Lomax Archive will be like, well, this is great. We get a physical product out there. We get a little bit of money, and we still get to stream this on our website and have it part free for the public on YouTube and all these things that we like to do and, and sort of community service things we like to do. And this company is not telling us what we can and can't do and who we can and can't license to and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we're kind of an ideal partner because I don't participate in that. And this was by not by design. This was just accidental based on me just being uncomfortable with digital and not understanding it. And I'm still like a primitive. I mean, I don't even have a cell phone. I don't, you know, <laughs> I've never streamed a song. I've, I've listened to music on YouTube and that's about the extent of my, my digital music listening. I think it's a really interesting model because it, it frees your mind a lot. I mean, for me as a person who runs a label, because when we put out an album and we put it out in all formats, the problem that you instantly face is, will someone buys the CD, they rip it onto the internet and then they pass it around the internet and it's already out there for free. Mm-hmm. So all this money that I've invested and all this time I've invested is potentially going down the drain mm-hmm. because you know, this person just bought one copy and now has given it away to the rest of the universe. I think that's less of an issue nowadays. It's sort of things seem to be evening out a little bit. But a few years ago, that was like a really big concern. We were losing real sales to internet piracy. But if you just put out the LP version and the rest of the formats are the artist's issue, then you don't even have to think about it. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's great. And I don't, yeah, I'm not (laughs) wrapped up. I'm not uptight about all that stuff. And I, I, there's such a finite world of people who collect vinyl that I can sort of understand it a little better and and predict numbers a little better and and create pressings that are the right size and just walk away after that pressing. The downside is like a lot of artists on our label get the short shrift who aren't very savvy with dealing with digital and all this. And I, I wish I was better equipped sometimes. I wish I could a partner with someone who was smart in this area to sort of benefit the artists on our label. And, and you know, promotion, like I don't, when we don't do any promotion. So some artists on our label now are contemporary artists who are still out there playing and, you know, where I'm their label and these poor souls are stuck with a label that does no sort tour support, has no idea how to engage with the internet or promotion or Twitter or whatever, you know? And so these, these poor saps are like stuck on the worst <laughs> label for a contemporary artist to be on, but they get a nice vinyl version and really good distribution. So it's sort of a trade-off, but then it's up to them to do the rest of the hustle for better or worse. Right. Sometimes for better, you'll have right. artists like we have like Marisa Anderson on our label, who's a, a great guitarist and, mm-hmm. and she's, she's savvy and cares a lot about her art and, and knows how to work on the internet a little bit, but with class, you know, Mm -hmm. and not gross. And so she's got her stuff out there in a beautiful way. I'll have an equally talented artist who I'll put a record out by and it will sell just equally well on vinyl, but because they don't have Marisa's acumen for sort of pushing the limits and really being dedicated, it'll just disappear. And there'll be this weird record that exists in all these weirdos record collections and never (laughs) to be heard from again, sitting on a dusty shelf somewhere. Right. So it goes. Right. But that's kind of everybody's problem, I think, right now, because I think one of the pieces of fallout from the internet revolution is that artists have to be, they just have to be more savvy because 50% or more is artist interaction with their fans and driving people to actually, you know, want to interact with them and want to get involved. And if they're not doing that, then there's nothing that a Kill Rockstars can do. You know what I mean? We can't buy that coverage for them if they're not going to be interactive. Yeah, I don't know if I agree. I think, I mean, I guess the idealist in me, and maybe this is the 
uh, you know, because I, the grass is always greener kind of thing, like because I'm the kind of person who's too much of a dunderhead to deal with that stuff, I'd like to think that other small labels like Kill Rock Stars do have the potential and have in the past, I know they have, in fact, helped artists get their stuff out there and, and sort of take care of their artists. I mean, uh, the whole music industry is predicated on on exploiting artists, really. It was created to exploit an, an artists in a star system where it's like, you know, here's the few people who do really well and everyone's crawling to get to the top and be part of that 0.001% who actually make it and everyone else is supposed to be killing each other to get there. I'm getting off topic, sorry. But the, <laughs> <laughs> So it's like capitalism, you know, it's like the 1% thing. It's like we're all fighting for the one piece of bread when we should be creating a sustainable system for all artists that just helps us all survive. And a label's, a label's responsibility, I think, is to try to create that atmosphere and that thing where a small label's, where an artist can just survive. And like, you know, creating a record, we're doing one thing to help. We're just, like you said, we're confused on how to go all the way. Maybe 20 years ago, there are ways to really support an artist and really create that structure. And now it's so dispersed and, and so weird. We don't know what to do. We're scrambling. But I have faith that like small labels like yours is going to come up with creative ways to continue to support artists and, and sort of help them be sustainable to just be a band and, and exist in the modern world and not just, you know, have to hustle all the time and sell your stuff to Campbell's Soup or, oh, that's an outdated reference, uh, Coca-Cola. <laughs> They're still around, right? Isn't Campbell's Soup still around? I think they are. Oh, good. Okay. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I think... And we're living in an age when, you know, artists, it's a patron society and all these artists, the only way they ever make money is selling to commercials or TV shows or this kind of thing. And, you know, it's up to the labels, small labels to start to create alternatives for them to make a living. Right. And I agree with you completely. And mm -hmm. the term I always use is career artist. You know, my goal is to create career artists, not to help somebody become an overnight, you know, one hit wonder because we don't, we're not position to do that. We can't, we're not going to make you Lady Gaga. That's impossible. Yeah. But we also don't want you to write one album, put it out there in the world and then go home and become a, you know, waiter or something like, right. we want you to do this. You know, if you're a great artist and we believe in you, we want you to be able to do this for a living. And that does mean these days cobbling together a whole bunch of other stuff. I think what I meant with, with my statement before was that we can't do it for you. Artists have to participate. And I feel like sometimes artists don't understand that they sort of say like well i'm going to go home and you'll call me when you make me famous right right you know yeah, when you okay. get my career off the ground yeah no i agree with you there so there has yeah. to be that participation where you care i mean honestly it's just like anything else right if the artist doesn't care about their career i can't care more than the artist does sure about their career like yeah it won't work I know I agree with you and and really you know all the the artists who do best on my label are ones who I've been lucky enough to catch them at in the sort of later years of their career and they've built on a DIY level this whole thing you know a band like Dead Moon who toured for you know almost 20 years mm -hmm. and and built a fan base person by person for 20 years and they sold you know maybe a thousand, two thousand of one of their records during that twenty-year span, and now right. I can put out one of their records and sell six thousand copies or whatever because of all the hard work they already did all their lives. And I think about that a lot, and I feel so lucky as a label to be able to piggyback on their success. You mm -hmm. know, Michael Hurley is a good example of that too. He's been playing since nineteen sixty-three, and, <laughs> and I piggyback onto him, and and you know now, right. <laughs> and get to take advantage of all of his hard works. And I look back on their whole careers and. It's humbling because they're still 
packing their own boxes when from their websites when people order stuff and they're still going on tour and they're still working so hard themselves, you know, and, and doing so much for themselves because they believe in their art and because it's just, you know, they're industrious. These mm-hmm. are working class people who, who know how to push their own agenda and push their own thing. And I'm always like, I feel bad, you know, I feel like I should be able to do more than I am. And I guess, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, I, I want somebody to, maybe this is a call out to arms to all you people in the music industry out there, come to me, tell me how to build a structure that will, will make Mississippi Records sustainable and enable to help these artists. Because instead, all I'm really doing, putting a little money in their pocket and giving them a record to sell at shows. But I haven't figured out how to do more than that without you know, without compromising my vision. But that is part, that's such a critical part these days of the thing that artists have to do to cobble together a living. Mm -hmm. You know, giving them something to sell at shows is huge because that's where they make their, you know, the gas money and the food money. I mean, that's huge. And then actually paying them a royalty is also huge. You know, a lot of labels, I mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the internet lately, but there's been some stuff going around about labels that have chronically not paid artists Mm -hmm. for years and years. And that's been just really upsetting to artists to discover, oh, hey, wait a second. Those records that I thought went nowhere, well, they did sell, but no one ever gave me any money for it. Deal the dirt, which labels are they talking trash about? I can't say on the air. (laughs) I'll tell you later. Okay, fair enough. But, you know, and that's something that Kill Rockstars, we've done since the beginning, is paid our artists. Yeah, you guys and, have a good rep. And that's been so important to me. When I took over the label, that was like my number one priority is we got to be able to keep paying people because this is their livelihood. I mean, I want career artists. I don't want, you yeah. know, someone who has to be a dishwasher. When I started Mississippi, I, I decided to pay all artists in advance for our pressing. So if I press 2,000 records, I pay the full royalty for all 2,000 in advance. And the reason I did this was selfish mainly because I didn't want to deal with artists calling me every week and being like, where's my check? Oh my God, why have I only sold this many copies? What are you doing? Like you were saying, those Good sort point, of entitlement yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. But also it was a way to, to win trust and, and sort of make things simple. And, and also I'm a terrible accountant and I didn't want to <laughs> keep track of all that stuff and do inventory over and over again. And especially with working with nine distros in America, alone. So it was just like, oh my God, dealing with this is just going to be a nightmare. Like what right. is actually sold? What hasn't, who has what on their distro shelves, collecting dust, what is actually sold? So I simplified it like that. And I mean, that's a luxury that I'm sure most labels don't have, you know, that takes a lot of forward capital and sort of, I managed to do that because my editions were selling out mm-hmm. relatively quickly. So I could pull that off. So in a way, it cut me clean of the artists, though, because here's your records, here's your money, see you later. You right. Know? And right. then good luck with your career. And then I call and go, <laughs> actually, I didn't want to repress it. What do you think? Or let's do a second record. And that's about the next time they hear from me. Right. So it's kind of like I'm having affairs instead of long-term relationships. <laughs> you know, Nobody has exclusivity to me or, or any sort of deal where they just You're have to deal with polyamorous me. record yeah, dude, record yeah. label dude. So the, the love is there, but it's not as solid as maybe it should be or as, <laughs> as uh, consistent, you know. So what can you do? You do the best we can with what we got. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a weird note to end on. <laughs> Eric Isaacson is the owner of Mississippi Records, and thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard The Slants, Charmaine Clamore, Marisa Anderson, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. 
If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Anderson.